prophecy and history and some strange pieces that went together. And indeed we did. Some historical things there in Isaiah uh, match up with prophetic things, and most people would not recognize that. But I want to entitle this, where we're starting today, differently, simply because it will probably be a major series, and it may be one we want to point to, and I want to, I want to make the title a little more germane to the subject matter, or, or a whole lot more, let's put it that way. So I think I'll call this Promised Land, Jerusalem, Zion, these slashes or commas between those, where truly are they? That's the question on the board. Where are they? Now, I realize that most people would say, what kind of a question is that? Everybody knows they're over in the Middle East. So let's, let's approach this today from the standpoint of, is this absolutely crazy? Is there any possibility of any such thing? Because the most common objection I think we will have is, well, everybody knows it's over there. Everybody knows that. Well, everybody knows is the biggest authority on earth. That's the most frequently quoted authority. Well, everybody knows that. Well, is this something everybody knows? Do they know it to be certain? Do they know it for a fact? Or is this something that has simply been accepted um, by people? Let me ask you a question. You ask, should you go to church on Sunday? Well, everybody knows that's the day to go to church. Everybody knows that. Well, maybe the Sunday Adventists don't, but they're kind of weird anyway. Everybody knows that. Is Christmas and Easter, are those good things? Are those Christian things? Why do you even ask? Everybody knows those are Christian. Everybody keeps those. Catholics, Protestants. Sometimes we have to begin to question what everybody knows. And you would not be in the church of God, any part of it today, if you hadn't at some time begun to question what everybody knows. And that is that you ought to be keeping Sunday, Christmas, and Easter. Uh, everybody knows we're born again, don't they? Doesn't everybody that's religious or Christian know that? Well, yeah. Except we found out when we asked questions and began to study the Bible, that wasn't true either. So there are a lot of questions, and you, people, us, all of us, have shown in the past that we are willing to question what everybody knows. There, we have a track record proving that. So as we approach this subject of where truly is the promised land, where is Jerusalem, where is Zion, I only ask that we keep an open mind. I didn't say quit thinking. I said open your mind to possibilities, to consideration, in other words. And God opened our minds at one point to begin to teach us the truth, and we were willing to consider that maybe everything we'd been taught all our lives about some of these issues I've already brought up uh, 
whether they were true or not. What about evolution? Now, there's you, there's you a major lie that almost everyone has accepted. Even religion has pretty much accepted that. They'll give God some little part in the creation, but they just really don't believe there's a true living God who actually created from bara, nothing in the Hebrew, the world that we see today, or rearranged it from the time that he did create it out of nothing in a beginning in Genesis, changed it materially from what it had been. So most people, if you ask them today if evolution is true, would tell you yes. Everybody knows that. I learned that in school. So let's have at least an open mind and consider these things that way as to whether they could possibly be so, and then we can go into detail and find out if it makes any sense at all. You know, well-counterfeited money looks and feels real. It takes an expert to tell you that that $100 bill is not real because there are some people who can counterfeit things pretty closely. And really, it's very, very hard to know truth from error on that. Now, let's ask a question. If we have been deceived about where these important areas are, who would have such a motive to do that. Well, anytime there's a crime, a fraud is perpetrated, a lie is told, someone's murdered, the very first thing that authorities begin to look for is motive, or one of the very first things. That's why they'll settle on the mate or a business partner or someone like that and investigate them first because they know from history that usually However, the crime was perpetrated, it was done by someone who knew the victim in one way or another and tried to take advantage of them. So motive is a very, very important forensic uh, thing to consider. Who would have a motive to change things if indeed they've been changed? Let's go to Revelation 12. And I'm going to show you, well, you've probably already figured it out, someone with a very powerful motive. Revelation 12. Here we have the picture of a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, upon her head a crown of twelve stars. And she was with child, prevailing in birth, to be delivered. And the story is then about Satan who drew third of the angels from heaven, and stood before her to destroy the, the, the child that was born. Of course, immediately we understand that Herod tried to kill all the baby boys in the area to make sure they killed the Christ. And we know then the rest of this story in this chapter that it is also tra translated here to the end time where those prophecies in Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and the minor prophets, and all the way through, depict the church, as it does here in Revelation 12, as a woman in the end time who is also giving birth to a child, the Christ child, in our lives, and being like him, to bring forth Christ-like qualities 
in ourselves and in the church. And this is talking about the church here at the end, where Satan is cast down, and he had no more place in heaven in verse 8, after the war in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceives the whole world. Now, here is a being who has a motive, whatever that motive might be, to change everything. He would change history. He would change religion. He would change belief in God and profound evolution to us. Here is a being who, whatever his reasons may be, and I think we know them, had a motive to change everything. And God indeed says here that he deceives the whole world. Now, re-examine that thought, everybody knows. What does everybody know? Everybody knows what Satan, the devil, has taught them about everything he possibly could deceive them on so that he has gotten the whole world to believe lies. That's very clear here. The whole world. We'll see another addition, additional comment on that here in just a moment. And he came down having great wrath, verse 12, and he persecuted the woman which brought the man-child, that's the church, and she fled into the wilderness, into her place, where she's nursed three and a half years, and he sent a, an army a flood, uh, just as he used the Assyrian back in Isaiah, what is it, eight or nine there, to, uh, he used the, the uh, analogy of a river again coming over the banks and going all over the land of Israel. Same analogy here. <coughs> and who is he angry with? Verse 17. With the woman, and went to make war with the remnant of her seed. So those who are counted worthy flee to a place of safety, it says, to their place that God has prepared, and then, since he couldn't get them, he turns around and makes war with all of those left behind that have the commandments of God and the testimony of Christ. Now, those are the exact same words he used, as we just read twice in Isaiah yesterday, the testimony of God and the commandments. And those are the people that he is after. I'm, he doesn't go after the Catholics. He doesn't go after the Buddhists. When he's cast out of heaven, he comes directly after the church. And when he can't get those qualified to escape, he goes directly after everyone else who believes the commandments of God. Again, everybody knows the commandments are done away. <laughs> well, why does Satan hate the commandments of God so much? Because the true people of God... Hey, this is New Testament reading, isn't it? The commandments of God here in Revelation 13, after Paul wrote everything he wrote in Galatians and all those places they go to and say the commandments are evil and rotten and done away, why does it talk about it here? Why does it talk about it at the end of this book? Because after all Paul wrote and Peter and James and John and everybody else wrote, the commandments still stand, and they're what Satan hates. But everybody knows in the Catholic and Protestant world, that the commandments are done away. We have learned differently, haven't we? Anyway, 
chapter 13, it talks about this beast rising out of the sea, and I won't go through all the the details on it, but it's satanic, very obviously. Uh, and this beast is one that the world wonders at, in verse 3, and the end of, well, verse 4, and they worship the dragon which gave power to the beast. Satan's the dragon. So it says that they don't, they won't know it, but they're worshiping the dragon. They're worshiping Satan. And they worship the beast, saying, who is like the beast, who is able to make war with him. And there was given to him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. So great, wondrous lies. And power was given him to continue 42 months. <clears throat> and notice verse 6. He opened his mouth in blasphemy against God, so his greatest motive is to discredit God. Now, he's done that in subtle ways through the doctrine of evolution. He's done it through religion and getting rid of the Ten Commandments so that people will not live the way of God. And they teach kind of a syrupy, emotional love, and love is wonderful, uh, but human love, not godly love, which is the keeping of the commandments. There is a vast difference. So they blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. Blaspheme God's name, he blasphemes God's tabernacle. What is God's tabernacle? That's where he dwells, is it not? He dwelt in the tabernacle in the wilderness. They were only allowed to go in once a year. <clears throat> he said he would have his presence in the temple that Solomon built. And he says he is going to come and dwell with his church in the end time, and we'll make a case later for building a physical as well as a spiritual temple. And he said he would come and dwell in it. That's his tabernacle. That's his house. He said he de desires to dwell at Jerusalem in Zion. So, is it possible that Satan has deceived about God, who he is, what he is, where he is, how he is, his commandments, his name, everything about him, his creative ability, has been blasphemed by Satan. He also blasphemes the dwelling of God. So he tells lies about God. He tells lies about God's dwelling place. That is a very interesting scripture I had not noticed until recently. And them that dwell in heaven as well. The angels, Christ himself, the 24 elders, he blasphemes them. So everything about God, he tells lies about. Now, I ask you, could that include places like the promised land of Jacob and Abraham? Could it include the place of God's dwelling on the earth? Would he not want people to be confused and deceived about that as well? If you're going to lie about everything about God, why wouldn't you lie about that too? 
So that opens a possibility and a question mark right there. It, it is pretty much all-inclusive what Satan would be willing and likely to do, and here says he will do. And it includes the tabernacle, which was in Jerusalem, or the temple in Jerusalem, and it could be referring even to God's dwelling place in the sides of the north, in the heavens, because it says in them that dwell in heaven. But we know that when a very, in a very few short years, the dwelling place of God is going to be moved to the earth. Uh, would Satan want us to be deceived about that as well, as to where God would be? He's trying to keep us as far from God as he possibly can, as human beings on this earth, and has deceived the, the whole world about all these things. I think we are seeing that there could be a very, very possible motive here, is the point I want to make it. Verse 7, And it was given to him to make war with the saints and overcome them, and power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. So even though the tabernacle and the, those that dwell in heaven could possibly only mean the heavenly things he's deceived us about, God ties it together here with the saints and the people of the earth all over the earth. So that opens the possibility again that he could be referring to both the spiritual heavenly temple or tabernacle and the one here. And has it not been his motive to deceive the whole world? We've already read that. And he has accomplished it. Is he limited in what he is willing to lie about and deceive? I doubt anyone would think that Satan has limits on what he would lie about. So that opens the possibility of what we're discussing as well. Now notice verse 8. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Everybody but those whom God has opened the minds to see the deceptions are still deceived. And they will all worship him. Now, if you wonder who are those written in the book of life, there are scriptures on that. You go right one chapter ahead of this when he quits discussing Satan, and he talks about the 144,000 stood on Mount Zion. Now, there's a specific prophecy that when Christ returns with his saints, he will come and stand on Mount Zion with his saints. And then he names them, 144,000 spiritual virgins who are the first fruits. Now, who does Satan hate the most? The 144,000 first fruits whose names will be written in the book of life, those sealed by God. Some have already been sealed. Some are still to be sealed. But Paul even spoke of the church members as having been sealed. We went through that in how exclusive is the church. So everybody, essentially, but the church of God, is deceived. Everybody. So everybody knows becomes a pretty weak argument, if you put it in that context. It leaves a lot of possibilities open. 
He is then going to do great wonders, verse 13, and make fire come down from heaven in the sight of men, and deceives them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast. And then he tells them they should make an image of the beast and take this mark in their hand and their foreheads, and they all line up like good little boys and girls and do that, all except the very elect. So this is a pretty widespread deception. Uh... Revelation 20, verse 10. I'm going to take a little time with this because I think it's important to lay this background and understand who it is that we're dealing with. Chapter 20, verse 2, He laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent which is the devil, and Satan, and bound him a thousand years, cast him into a bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal upon him, that he should deceive the nations no more, till a thousand years should be fulfilled, and after that he must be loosed a short season. So, mankind begins to serve God when Satan is bound. He has more effect on us than even our human nature does. He just uses our human nature against us. But he's foul, evil, and dirty to the core. And notice, when those years are expired and he's let out, verse 8, he'll deceive the nations again, and he'll deceive them the number of them, which is as the sand of the sea, in the verse 8. And he came up against the camp of the saints at that time and tried to destroy them. We won't read the whole thing, but he is so powerful that when he's bound, mankind turns and obeys God. When he is released for just a short while, he immediately deceives perhaps hundreds of millions or billions of people, just like that. What is he trying to do? Pull them away in any way he can from God. He will attack them at the heavenly Jerusalem come down, God's headquarters on this earth is where he will attack them. He does not like God's headquarters. Chapter 19. Now we've already covered that. Uh, at least in principle. I had one more here, 1823. <clears throat> Talking about uh, Babylon being thrown down and so on. And the light of a candle shall shine no more at all in you, and the voice of the bridegroom and of the bride shall be heard no more at all in you, for your merchants were the great men of the earth, for by your sorceries were all nations deceived. So he says here, Satan has deceived the marketers, the merchantmen, the businessmen of the world. He's deceived all nations on everything he possibly can. We have to consider that. Now let's consider Genesis 3. We'll necessarily go back there. You, you know the story. But as we heard yesterday, God had made a garden and created man and woman and put them in it and had given them everything they needed for a happy life. Well, possible exception of an iPhone 5. But other than that, they had everything you could possibly need. And what did Satan do? He appeared 
probably almost immediately, as soon as possible. And he rewrote history. The true history was that God said that if you eat of this tree, you will surely die. Now that was true history, spoken by God himself, or by Christ, to two individuals on the face of the earth, Adam and Eve, the only people there were at that time. And he said, God did not say that. He rewrote all the history of mankind that existed in one little sitting. Just like that. And he deceived the whole world, all both people, the snap of the finger, rewrote all of history. But he showed from the very beginning he is quite capable of, has a motive to do so, and is willing to rewrite history, to change everything from truth to lies and error. I think that is a very important concept for us. I, I think we know that in a way, but I think it's good to focus on it here a little bit when we're approaching a subject that is, uh, in most people's minds, unbelievable, impossible. How could? Well, I think we're seeing here very easily not only how could, but how did Satan do these things. So, I know this does not prove the premise that is on the table at this point, but it proves there is a very powerful being who has very powerful motives to change everything that is true to something which is a lie. He is a liar and the father of liars. So if we establish that, then at least our mind can comprehend but not only did he change this, this, that, and that, but he might also, could have, changed this also. There is that distinct possibility. So he rewrote, rewrote or reworked and rewrote history right from the beginning. He didn't waste any time. Now, do you think he's changed on that? No, even in the book of Revelation we find that Satan is still quite willing to deceive the whole world, and the whole world from Adam and, on, Adam and Eve on down until today is still deceived. There are precious few who understand what we understand about God and who he is and what's true to do and what we should do. There aren't very many. Let's... Uh, Let's go to 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 9. A little bit different uh, viewpoint here, but I, I want us to look at it. <clears throat> when did I turn to Revelation? I said 1 Corinthians 6. Know you not, verse 9, that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Be not 
deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the eternal Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. So mankind does these things that are contrary to the law of God, and yet they can be forgiven through the blood of Christ and enter into eternal life. So he says, don't be deceived. Well, it brings up one of those topics that I already addressed. The law of God is done away. Everybody knows that. I mean, if you've been to, if you've been to Sunday school, you learn that. You don't have to keep the law. He says, be not deceived. Satan has deceived the whole Protestant world on that one. Catholic world too. And the rest of the world. The rest of the world certainly doesn't believe in keeping the commandments of God. 1 Timothy 2. And here I want verse 14. <clears throat> and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. Notwithstanding, she shall be saved in, I think it should read, the childbearing Christ, if they continue in faith and love and holiness with sobriety. So he first deceived the woman, and then Satan, I mean, uh, Adam, like a dummox, went ahead and followed. But ultimately, he was deceived as well, was he not, about God and who God was? He believed the lie, in other words. Uh, Luke 21. Here in verse 8, Luke 21, verse 8. Christ speaking, and he said, Take heed that you be not deceived, for many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and the time draws near, go you not therefore after them. Well, he says, Many deceivers will come into the world, and their father is the devil, father of liars, the, the, the chief deceiver. So we have to be careful and not be deceived. Well, we all were deceived. And we had to come out of that deception and come to understand the truth. We even had back in Worldwide a series done which was called Satan's Great Deception. And it covered a pretty vast panorama of different things that Satan has re deceived mankind on and that we had been deceived as well. Ezekiel 28 Uh, let's go here primarily to verse 17. This is uh, in the description of Satan, Hillel, who was perfect in his ways, verse 15, from the day he was created until iniquity was found in him. Uh, but the, by the multitude of your merchandise have you filled the midst of you with violence, and you've sinned. Therefore I will cast you as profane out of the mountain of God and will destroy you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You have corrupted your wisdom by reason of your brightness. His whole thinking process became corrupted. 
the things that he knew. He knew at one time that God was the supreme ruler of the universe. He knew that Christ, who was not yet a son, was there with him as co-rulers. He knew about the 24 elders and all the angels. And he knew that that was God's way. But then a thought of vanity, of pride, entered into his mind, and it began to corrupt his wisdom, to corrupt his understanding. And it became so warped, so twisted, and so absolutely upside down that he thought he could take over and rule the universe. Wow. His whole thinking process was turned inside out and upside down. How could anyone dwelling at the throne of God have his thinking so perverted, so twisted, so utterly worthless? As a result of this, I will cast you to the ground, I will lay you before kings that they may behold you, and so on. And then he gives his fate and, and, and all that. But to point out there that he changed it, Corrupted your wisdom means you what? You change it. You revise it. He revised his view of everything. He rewrote history. Because the true history was God is the ruler of the universe. The true history is God had created the universe. The true history is he had created Satan. In his own mind, Satan, from even then, before the Garden of Eden, started rewriting history his own way. It was weird. It was strange. It was upside down. But it was his way of thinking. It was his way of believing. You're not going to attack God and try to take over unless you've pretty well convinced yourself you can get the job done. You know what? So he had rewritten his whole mentality, his whole belief system the whole history, if you will. So if we broach the subject that Satan may have rewritten some things uh, in the history that we read in our school books, uh, doesn't everybody know by now Columbus didn't discover America, that there were Vikings here, that the Chinese came over, that, and so on, but they're still being taught in school that like Columbus discovered this land in 1492. Well, most everybody still knows that. But it's so obvious if you begin to read a little bit that that wasn't the case at all. <clears throat> uh, I could go to Isaiah 14. It's really been, it's really the same scripture as Ezekiel 28, written a little differently, giving us different detail. But there again, it is recorded that he distorted his view of himself and what he had been, his own history, and what he had claimed to become. You know, people do that, don't they? If you start telling people about you, are you not going to leave some things out? You're probably going to tell them everything you ever did or ever thought, are you? You'll give them your view and you're going to sanitize it quite a bit. You're going to clean it up, and you're going to sort out what you're going to tell them and what you're not going to tell them. That's exactly what Satan did. 
Now, I'm not saying we ought to all have a confessional here and tell everything about ourselves. But it is so natural and so normal, is what I want to point out, that we change things and we want to put our best foot forward. We want to convince people that we're A-OK if possible. And even the losers in mankind's wars write history far differently about that war than the victors do. Our view of what happened in Europe in World War I and World War II is far different than the history books that the German kids study. Far different. You can go and look up some textbooks and see for yourself if you don't believe me. We have a far different view of that than they do. They say the victors write the history. So we wrote it the way we wanted it. We sounded good. We sounded righteous. We sounded like everything we did in that war was a wonderful thing. And everybody could play the the drums and march to that. We never did do anything bad. Well, we try to be, our government tries to deceive us about America today, of why we're going into all these places and bombing them, is so we can spread democracy, baloney, is so we can have their oil. There are geopolitical reasons we do, we start all these wars. It isn't for democracy. We don't even have democracy in this country anymore. It doesn't exist. In name only, but in actual practice it doesn't work. Do you think we are being governed by the people for the people? <laughs> what a joke. We do what the feds tell us to do, or we go to jail. How many of us would endorse the IRS, for instance, if given a chance? If you're voted, would you like to keep the IRS in place and all their agents running around looking into your private lives and your finances? I don't think most Americans would, would agree with that. Not even people who don't understand anything. They'd like that to be gone. No, we don't rule ourselves in this country. It isn't democratic. We're for the people, by the people, and like we say, isn't there. And that's just one example. There's thousands more. Okay, I think we're, we're seeing some things here. There's another scripture. Uh, I didn't look this one up. It just came to mind. I jotted it down that Satan's demons appear as angels of light. They transform themselves into angels of light. The same point I've been making here the last few minutes is they sanitize their view of themselves and then they appear to mankind to be good. And as I was talking the other day, where God himself says that they come and they bring not this doctrine, the commandments, that's what John talked about more than anything else. The apostles had the greatest love, talked more about commandments than any of them in, in terms of percentage of his uh, gospel and of his first, second, and third John. And he showed that Satan has deceived, 
And even though they may say some good things, people will say. Well, I only listen to these Protestant preachers because they do say a lot of nice things about love or blah, 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 or whatever it is reason you want to give that you listen to them. But the Scripture of God itself says if they come and bring not this gospel, don't listen to them. We have trouble understanding that, it seems, at times. Because there's some good there, people will say. Well, Satan can appear as some good and very, very subtly confuse you and deceive you about the real truth, even about love. Can't he? I don't need Greek words to prove what God's love is. I speak English. I understand and have for 60 years agape and all those filios and those words. Fine, if you want to use them, that's fine, but I speak English. And when God says the love of God is that you keep his commandments and you treat your neighbor as yourself, that defines godly love. Human emotion for children, human emotion for mates, and so on, is human love. And it is valid. The love of God means you love even your enemies and those who despitefully use you and persecute you and so on. Uh, those things are very clear. I don't need Greek to prove that to me. All I have to do is re read the Bible that God translated, had translated into English, and I can understand that. So I'm not picking on anybody. Uh, the example, you know, comes up. But there could be a thousand of them to show that God has a certain way of looking at things, and we don't want to go to Protestants or Catholics or Buddhists to get a little bit of truth, because Satan does transform himself and his ministers, it says, as angels of light. Now, unless anybody question it, I'm not against agape and pilios. If you want to use the Greek, that's fine. If it makes it a little clearer to you, that's fine too. Got no problem about that. But uh, if it's preached by God's ministers who understand, it's probably okay. But if it's preached by a Methodist or a Baptist, you better watch out because it's going to get twisted some way, somehow, whatever the subject is. He twists everything. Uh, let's see that 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. In whom the God of this world, clearly Satan, has blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine to them. So he's deceived the world, he's deceived religion. And they do not believe the glorious, true gospel of God. It is a false gospel. Now here's the... Well, Excuse me, here's the rub. That false gospel is so close to truth that he is able to deceive. He'll give you a certain amount of truth, but he'll mix something in that's off, and that's what the Protestant preachers do. They'll give you a lot of stuff that's true, but it will have a twist. It will have the context changed. Things will be a little different. So you get a distorted picture 
and you don't understand the true God and the true gospel, the glorious gospel of Christ himself. That's how it works. If you want to make a counterfeit dollar bill again, you want to make it as close as you possibly can to a real one so that people can be taken and snared and deceived. So it needs to be a reasonable facsimile. So if he's deceived us about the promised land, if he's deceived us about Jerusalem and Zion, then the place he chose to do that is going to have some similarities. And it could be taken the wrong way very easily, could it not? He is going to make things, and however he deceives, as close as he can to the real, but still be alive. He doesn't care how pagan we are, as long as we're pagan. He doesn't care how near his religion is to God's, as long as it isn't God's religion. It's easier to deceive people that way. Even we, if we want to distort something or change it, we'll tell our story as close to the truth as we can and still hide what it is we're trying to hide, won't we? We want to make it sound plausible and yet not tell the truth. That's the way human beings think when they choose to lie. Satan's the same way. Uh, Romans 1, they're talking about the creation, and I won't go there, uh, it says that they exchanged the truth for the lie. And part of that was homosexuality. And he, uh, they go on to explain there in the book of Romans. Well, we have today a whole nation of 330 million people. And the vast majority of them now would say either... Homosexuality is okay if that's your cup of tea, or I'm not against it, or let them do as they please. Now, they might not themselves be practicing it, but we are so fair today in our approach that we will let something that abominable within our realm of thinking. Used to, we thought of San Francisco as the place for all that stuff. Now it's in every street in America and spreading fast, like it did in Sodom and Gomorrah. Subtle, but as it takes hold, it becomes more and more acceptable until everyone will accept and believe the lie, unless they know the truth. And if you read the Bible and say what God says about it, well, you can't read the Bible. We don't accept the Bible. Uh, John 8:44. I know we know these, but I think it's I think it's good, kind of in Bible study format, to review some of these things. Here he was talking to uh, those who thought they were righteous and knew Abraham and were his children, and uh, they were a okay because their father was Abraham, and Christ told them. <coughs> 
verse 43, Why do you not understand my speech, even because you cannot hear my word? You are of your father the devil, not of your father Abraham as you think, but your real father is the devil. And the lusts of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks of his own, for he is a, fa a liar and the father of lying. He's the one that began it, started it, conceived it, began lying. Now, those are pretty, those are fighting words to those people because they thought they were absolutely holy and righteous and that they were the blood children of Abraham. Well, that didn't do them a whole lot of good in Christ's eyes, did it? The blood doesn't mean anything. Whether we're Israelite by blood or Gentile by blood, it is the Spirit of God there. That's all that counts. It's all that matters. But they thought because they were physical Israelites, they were a-okay. No, Christ didn't agree with that at all. So that's a deception and a lie. Well, let's see. I can skip over some of these. Uh, there's there's plenty of them. Ephesians 2, 2, right, uh, that Satan is the prince of the power of the air. He has great power in the physical world that we have around us. Uh, John twelve thirty one. he's the prince of this world. He's in a rulership position. Uh, Acts 13, I, I think I want to turn to that one. Acts 13, if you look, look down about uh, verse 10. Now here he's talking to Elimus the sorcerer here. And he said in verse 10, And said, O full of all subtlety and all mischief, you child of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease to pervert the right ways of the eternal? So he's saying, you're just like the devil, and you will pervert all the right ways of God. So anything that's right, anything that's true, Anything that is of God, Satan has a goal, a purpose, and a motive to cause people not to believe it, but to believe a lie about any and every thing. Ephesians 6, and here I want verse 12. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Now, to a degree, we fight ourselves, our human nature, and that is flesh and blood. But that's not our real enemy. That's not our biggest enemy. We don't wrestle with flesh and blood outside ourselves, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. That's our real enemy, Satan the devil and his demons, and they influence men. And then he tells us to take on the whole armor of God and, and so on. 2 Timothy 2.6. Let's go back there as well. We're beginning to see a pattern here. 
same thing over and over and over. Second uh, Timothy 2, I said verse 6. Did I write that down wrong? I must have. Was it First Timothy I wanted? No. Well, we won't go spend time trying to find that, but uh, the one I had in mind, I must have written it down wrong, indicates that Satan captivates and places and people and uses them. I think that's a, a good one, but I don't know. Uh, Hebrews 2.14 says the devil has the power of death. Mark 4, verse 15, I'll just refer to this as well, says he takes away the word of truth. Well, if he takes the word of truth, he must replace it with something that is wrong, lying, and evil. Does he have a motive or not? 2 Timothy 2.26. Let me run back there then. Thank you. Two twenty-six. Uh, let's let's start in verse twenty-five. In meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. He's, he's telling Timothy here how to to speak to the people. So be careful. But people actually oppose themselves by the attitudes they take, some of the things they believe. They get in their own way. Aren't we sometimes our own worst enemy? That's what he's trying to say here. Uh, instruct those that oppose themselves, who have stinking thinking, wrong thinking, uh, selfish thinking, prideful thinking, whatever. And they actually inhibit their own growth because of their attitudes that they have. That's kind of what he's describing here. So, instruct them if God, perhaps, will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth, and that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by him at his will. Do you think that you can be taken and captivated by Satan just at his will? Well, look at the world. He has taken the whole world and deceived it because he willed it to happen. And it has. And the only way we can fight that is if we have the truth of God which sets us free and the Spirit of God to overcome the will of Satan. It becomes a will, a battle of wills where we take on the Spirit of God, thereby the will of God, and fight the will of Satan. So he says people are taken and snared by the devil at his own will. That's a scary thought is that he can take human beings and overcome their objections so very easily. Just like he does at the end of the millennium when he's loose for a short season and so quickly, just bam, at his will, deceives millions and millions, maybe billions of people. Now here's an interesting one. Revelation 2. We're getting close to the end of this here. But I did want to touch on this one. <clears throat> because it could be significant in our study. Uh, Revelation 2, verse 13. Now, this is in the, the area of where it's talking about the seven churches. 
the things God approves and doesn't approve and so on. But he makes a statement here that is very interesting in his dissertation to Pergamos. Verse 13, I know your works and where you dwell, even where Satan's seat is. And you hold fast my name and have not denied my faith, even those whose days were in Antipas, my faithful martyr, who was slain among you where Satan dwells. So the seat of Satan, or his throne, is in a specific location on earth, and it's a place that he looks upon as his dwelling place. Now, he's the prince of the power of the air and the ruler of this present world. But he has a specific place on this earth that he dwells. Now, there are a lot of Protestants who would say that's Rome, because they hate the Catholic Church and call her the whore, the great whore. Herbert Armstrong saw that in the commentaries, Protestant commentaries, and said the church was, I mean, that the Catholic Church was the great whore that the beast and the false prophet would destroy. And the, the view of the church came to be that the Catholic Church was the great whore and that all the Protestant church were her little harlot daughters. Now, I will not argue with that premise. Uh, she is a whore from God and has gone a-whoring after Satan and his beliefs. And her little Protestant daughters have changed somewhat from the Catholic view, but they still have pretty much the Catholic teaching. And what is different than the Catholic teaching is just twisted, perverted stuff that's still not godly. So that moniker fits to one degree or another. But who does God name as the great whore? Israel. Ezekiel 16, for starters. That's who God calls the great whore. And she's the one that's riding the beast at the moment. America, Ephraim, the leader of Israel, is the leader of the world. That's fast changing, but it's still true today, militarily and economically, in virtue of various types of power. That still is true. And God speaks of that great whore as having, well, we won't go into all that story about all those sermons I did on Babylon. Anyone who hears this later down the road, I'll make a, a brief reference like this. We have a series of sermons on who is Babylon, and even some in the world recognize America is the great Babylon of the end time, to soon be destroyed and replaced by an even greater Babylon, the great, the beast, the New World Order system. But we're it today, and we will be destroyed by the beast and the false prophet. It kills her. You think they're going to kill the Catholic Church? Why? She's in Satan's pocket. Why would he have her killed? But he makes sense. But back to the question. Where does Satan dwell? Is it Rome? Now, there is a verse... I think I wrote it down. I may have skipped over it. Uh, which says when demons are cast out, they go into dry desert places. They would prefer to be in dry desert places. Rome is not a dry desert place. Would Satan make his headquarters in Rome? Now we're going to see the Constantine the 4th century, and his mother named a lot of places in the Middle East. 
And today it is looked upon as the center of true religion. Today it is looked upon by Christians and Muslims as a holy place. That nation is a nation of amoral, unmoral, immoral people, essentially. There are very few religious people in the nation of Israel today. There are, I mean, yeah, the Muslims who are there are religious in terms of the Muslim religion. But by and large, the Jewish people in the land of Israel, and you can look it up, don't go to church. They are not religious. They are bought into Western thinking about evolution and about religion and all those things. They are a basically non-religious, or to use the correct term, sectarian society. Uh, not religious. Makes me wonder if maybe Satan's capital and his dwelling place on this earth might be that Jerusalem over there. He's made the world believe that. Is he not a liar? Does he not have motive to make us think that God's true dwelling place, his tabernacle, his sanctuary, would be in a wrong place. After all the scriptures we've looked at today, <clears throat> I think you would have to say that that is certainly within the realm of possibility. Now, Rome may be his summer home, but I wonder if that Jerusalem is not his capital. Now, all the New World Order, essentially, look to that Jerusalem. And I think that the beast and false prophet will probably set up their temple, their rulership, their headquarters there. Why was Constantine trying to show people that that area was the true place of Christ, the place of God, if Rome was their headquarters? I think that they deceived and named a lot of places in that area after things in the Bible, and we'll see that proved later on, that that is indeed what happened, in preparation for moving their capital there. I think it would be very likely the Catholic Church, along with the rest of the New World Order, will set up that Jerusalem as their world headquarters. I could be wrong on that, but... It is a very likely place because it's already looked upon as a holy place. And you add these lying signs and wonders and throw that with it, I think it is a distinct possibility. Because there's nothing godly there. God did not call, so far as I know, even one person from that nation into the church in the end time. Herbert Armstrong sent a few people over there, and a few people have moved there since the church broke up. Uh, thinking that's the place to be, but they were not there, were not converted there. The work of God did not begin there. It never became established there. There was never even a congregation of Worldwide Church of God in that country. So, we find no godly presence, none of the saints being there, none of the sealed, none of the 144,000 being there, but it's supposed to be the religious center of God Almighty? Why, is it, why doesn't God have some presence there then 
if that's the place he's going to rule. We'll get into some details about that later on, but I just want to ask a question there. Why do we look to that when there's nothing godly discernible there, but there's an awful lot there of false religion and paganism? Well, some interesting things. It is a desert place, desert area, and demons like desert areas to go to. On the other hand, God says that he is going to place his Jerusalem and his Zion and his people in a wilderness, mountainous, and desert area. So that's what God is going to do very clearly in the Scriptures. Would not Satan copy that and counterfeit it? Because he counterfeits everything God does. He is the great counterfeiter and has been from the time he changed his mind about God in heaven and when he changed Adam and Eve's minds in the garden and every human being, save those converted by the Spirit of God, ever since he has deceived into his way of thinking. So I think, as a summary statement, you would have to say nothing is sacrosanct from Satan's motive to, to deceive mankind. And the true dwelling place of God, the true place of the origins of mankind in the Garden of Eden that he tried to get them immediately kicked out of, you would think would be high on his list of things he didn't want the world to know about. So with that background, I'm going to stop today and... Uh, having considered those scriptures, again, let's have an open mind as we begin to sift through the analysis and the information and the facts one way or the other uh, as to the possibility that this is something that Satan would want to deceive on, and if he wants to do something, he accomplishes according to his will. So... Uh, I may have taken a long time to go through this. Maybe two scriptures would have been enough. But I think it was good maybe to examine quite a few of them and see how volatile and how powerful and how conniving and how lying and counterfeiting our enemy truly is. And therefore, what everybody knows <laughs> is not really a proper authority. So we need to find out what the facts are and then base them on the facts found in the Bible and maybe some facts that we can dig up or find there and or here and see what fits. So let's approach it from that standpoint of mind without bias or prejudice. As I said yesterday, I could be wrong. I have been wrong before about things and I had to change a lot of things. A lot of things I believe from childhood in the church of God, I've had to change. Passover, for one. Uh, you know, many things have had to be changed once we've seen what God literally and truly said in here. And some of those are things that we really believed and we thought we saw in the Bible. But we're just simply wrong. So it doesn't have to be necessarily Satan's deception, although it's clearly always there. But it can just be misunderstanding, too. So let's look at it from that standpoint. I wanted to get 
done by this time because we got an hour now to get ready to go bowling for those who are. So we'll pick up some more stuff tomorrow. Thank you.